Hey guys, my name is Pastor Ron. So glad that you tuned in to the podcast of Allentown Fellowship Church. Each week we're going to endeavor just to walk through the Bible book by book and then give you some truths that you can apply to your life. So welcome to the AFC podcast. Trust and pray that God's word today will be a blessing to you. Good morning, church. So today, Ron has given me the distinct privilege of preaching on adultery and circumcision (laughs) all in one service. Wow. Buckle your seatbelts, everybody. This is going to be a wild ride. But really, this is, like the rest of Romans, very important in setting the foundations for what we believe And this passage in particular is so important for us to understand our situation in this world and to appreciate God's goodness and his wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that as always you have put these butterflies in my chest because as your servant Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that's when he knows he needs to stop preaching when he no longer feels the butterflies. I thank you for laying on my heart the importance of your word, and I thank you for your word that it gives life and truth and it blesses all who hear it, especially those who you have given the faith to receive it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I recently heard a young pastor recount in a conversation that we, he had with an older and more experienced church leader. The young pastor sought an explanation uh, for this stereotype among cat, uh, uh, sorry, pastor's kids being rebellious and leaving the faith in their teenage years and in adulthood. Now, the older gentleman didn't even need to pause to think about how to answer this young pastor. He answered with one word hypocrisy. There we go. He answered with one word, hypocrisy. The child of a pastor gets to see both the pulpit and the household, and thereby often gets to see firsthand the unbearable dissonance between word and deed. Many people can give good sermons, and the devil can put up with a lot of good sermons if he can expose the speaker. The external so-called holiness of religion as a substitute for the sustained life-shaping holiness of the Spirit of God is perhaps the biggest setback to the advance of the gospel. Jesus reclined at table on several occasions with what would be considered the dregs of society, but he had no time for the corrupt religious institution of his day. The dregs of society, it would seem, didn't pose the same threat to the advance of the kingdom of God that the teachers of the law did. At least the crooked government workers and the women of the city were honest. They didn't wear long tassels on their cloaks and fix scripture to their foreheads uh, while they sought their own and did what seemed right in their own eyes. Now, this is not to excuse the world. We learned just last week that each of us whether we know the truth of Scripture or have never seen Scripture, will be judged according to the amount of revelation that we have received. But it is to say that those who sin against greater light will be judged with greater severity when God makes all things right in the end. Not just because they should have known better, 
but because they claimed to carry the name of God, but really just dragged it through the mud. And this, by the way, is the spirit of the third commandment. We take the Lord's name in vain when we do something in God's name that isn't godly, as if the mere evoking of the name of God excuses our actions, or even justifies them. So let's read Romans 2, starting at verse 17, going through 24. I'll move out of the way a little bit. So as I read the first part of the passage we're talking about today, if you claim Christ as Lord, I, w I call you to identify with the Jewish Christians in the audience that Paul is referring to. Like them, you know the truth and have been entrusted with the word of God. Let's read. But if you call yourself a Jew, Paul speaking to Jewish Christians here, and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, this was written to the Hebrews, specifically in the Old Testament, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Calling ourselves children of God doesn't keep us from dishonoring our Father in heaven. John the Baptist said as much when the religious authorities paid a visit to his baptisms. He said, uh, the Lord could take this stone right here and turn it into a son of Abraham and a child of the promise. So don't say that just because of your lineage, you're, you're on top here. God judges the heart, does he not? Moreover, knowing the standards and the will of God and encouraging others to abide by them doesn't keep us from dishonoring our Father that is in heaven either. The Pharisees knew the entire Old Testament from memory and could teach on any passage, but Jesus regarded them as blind guides because for all of their knowledge, they rejected the teaching of Christ himself about whom the whole Old Testament preached. One might fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, as Paul writes elsewhere, and still lack the evidence of heart-transforming godliness. And we'd be wise to ask ourselves whenever we see scripture, but especially in instances like this, is it I, Lord? Just like the disciples asked Jesus, is it I, Lord? Do we treat the Bible like an academic subject rather than treat ourselves as subject to the word of God? Do we feel that praying a prayer as a little child or knowing about God and his word have any more power to make us right in the sight of God than staring at a plate of food can satisfy hunger. Let's look at each of these verses in turn, each of these um, quotes in turn. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? We might know what's good for others, but do we take seriously that God calls not just others to righteousness, but us as well? We can read scripture forgetting that it's about us, 
not just others, and that we are being measured by its standards as well. This is a trap that we can all fall into. We're listening to a sermon, and we think to ourselves, yeah, they're talking about those people out there. No, Scripture is for us. We need this. Just like Ron was saying every week, you get out of the, every week you get out of alignment a bit. Um, the situations of life do this and that to you. A comment might uh, get your steering off a little bit, and now you're out of alignment. This is where we come back into alignment, where we receive the word of God and through the Holy Spirit receive it into our hearts. A scholar, once, a scholar that I respect once observed that, uh, quote, when you read about history, you're reading about you. So it is with the Bible. When we learn about the condition of the human heart in this passage, we are learning about the condition of our hearts, save for the intervention of God. And when we read through some of the Ten Commandments, as Paul does, that you can see up here, it's not hard to see ourselves as guilty of breaking them if we understand the spirit behind them. While you preach against stealing, Paul writes, do you steal? Now, some of us might have stolen some, that might not have stolen something from a store or from someone's house outright, but there are many ways to steal, some of which might outwit our consciences and become acceptable even to gloss over in a society that determines right or wrong, not so much by hard and fast standards, but according to whether or not we feel like we are, quote, good people. The most knowledgeable on the law in Paul's day were very good at keeping the letter, but not the spirit of the law. For example, the Pharisees taught that money that was to be given to parents in their old age, in accordance with the commandment to honor father and mother, could instead be declared something called Corbin. And these Corbin funds would go to the temple treasury. They were pledged to the temple. But these Corbin funds didn't just sit in a bin in the temple. It's not quite how it worked. These Corbin funds could be kept by the individual, instead of giving it to their parents, they would keep it and use it as an investment fund. They would build interest off of it, keep the interest for themselves, and then, when they were done, they would put the money that was pledged into the temple. So this is a way in which people kept for themselves what rightfully should have gone to another. In essence, the money was stolen. Jesus also accused the Pharisees of devouring widows' houses, preying on the possessions of society's most vulnerable. There's a record of Pharisees draining not only the means of widows, but sadly also the intellectually disabled and the mentally ill. We can read about that from extra-biblical sources from the day. And those manners in which they did that were at most uh, were, were uh, uh, of course, confined within the letter of the law by the interpretation of the Pharisees, but certainly not its spirit. And if I know anything about leadership, it's this kind of attitude that trickles down in a society, filling the whole thing with bitterness and corruption. In Leviticus 19, where we see some of the most important commands in Scripture that apply even to us today, the command not to steal from a neighbor that means anyone in the language of Jesus, is right next to the command not to exploit a neighbor or to withhold wages. This is not by accident. All of these things proceed from the same heart posture. In our day, 
Let's bring this to ourselves. Do we leverage what power we have, whether big or small, to exploit others? Exploitation can be done as an authority or as a subordinate, by the way. Both are capable of shortchanging the other. The law of God is, not, is made as a groundwork for justice on which a culture of generosity can thrive, not to set parameters to define what forms of exploitation are lawful and what forms of exploitation are not. Let's go on to the next thing that Paul mentions, the next commandment. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Now, the Greco-Roman world in which Paul writes is one in which it was normal for men to marry a woman, to bear him a legal heir, and to keep the house in shape, and then proceed to seek pleasure elsewhere. Due to the power dynamics of the, day, of, of the day in which Paul wrote, a woman's fidelity was expected, but the same expectation did not apply to men. But the kingdom of God was as subversive then as it is today. For both spouses are capable of committing adultery. This is because the offended party in adultery, as with all sin, is first and foremost neither the spouse nor the children involved, but God, who instituted marriage in the beginning and who never bends with society's expectations. In fact, according to Christ, if a man were to so much as look at a woman with lustful intent, in essence, coveting the woman for himself, he might as well be taking her as his own. Both the act and the look are motivated by covetousness and a lack of self-control, which amounts to adultery in the sight of God, which, of course, is the only opinion that matters. Our yielding to lust tells us all we need to know about how much we fear God, which, in turn, tells us all we need to know about how well we really understand who we are and who God is. You who abhor temples, sorry, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, in order to understand this one, we need to know what's meant by robbing a temple. And this is actually uh, pretty contested, uh, depending on what commentary you read. The phrase, do you rob temples, it shows up in all of one word in the Greek, and it can also be translated, do you profane something holy? And this confusion in the translation has led some to believe that what Paul is talking about is people uh, shortchanging at the offering plate, as it were, but this opens a can of worms. Since in the New Testament, nowhere are we given a specific proportion, but we are commanded to give generously in the Spirit. Now, other commentators suggested that because the Jewish Christians knew that the idols were nothing at all, only raw material, which is correct, Paul says as much, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it was fair game to steal from a temple. Now, this view makes a little more sense, as far as I can tell, since we see accusations of robbing temples elsewhere in the New Testament. If you look in the book of Acts, uh, you see this. It refers to that kind of behavior. It also helps with the flow of the passage. Consider this. Paul says, you're repulsed by idols, which you should be, but you still seek to benefit from systems of idolatry, albeit in a sneaky way. There's a kind of example of this thinking in the history of our own nation. Though it was illegal to own slaves north of the Mason-Dixon, 
before the abolition of slavery, Northerners participated in the acquisition of slaves to be sold at auction in the South. One can dislike evil and dislike it quite a bit and still find crafty ways to benefit from it, but that doesn't make those folks good. It only makes them more crafty in their evil. I'll leave it to each one of us to consider if we are guilty of thinking and living in a similar way. For all this, Paul writes, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. The Gentiles are speaking lies about God. That's what blasphemy is. Because of the Jewish Christians Paul is addressing. But what kinds of lies are being told about God? What's the nature of this blasphemy? This phrase down here, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, is taken out of Isaiah chapter 52, verses 4 through 5, which reads, What have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, that is, like a slave or like a prisoner of war. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised, or in another translation, blasphemed. We see how the name of God is blasphemed in that passage. Let's look at another one from Ezekiel 36, verse 20. God says, but when they, that is Israel, came to the nations, when they were in captivity, wherever they came, they moved around quite a bit, they profaned the holy name of the Lord. In that, here it is, people said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to go out of his land. What gives? Here is how the name of God is blasphemed. A nation looks at God's people and says, how can these be God's people? Where is the power that delivered these people from Egypt? These people fell just like all the other nations. Where is their God? That's what Paul's getting at here. If Paul's Jewish Christian audience is just like the nations, people will look at the church in Rome and really think to themselves, where is this God? Where is this kingdom that their God talked about, where the last are first and where the greatest is the servant, and here they are acting like the world? If these people trusted in their God, they wouldn't be acting like this. Is this all a big trick? Now, there's nothing new under the sun. In our country, you can go to churches that have services that run like a Broadway production, complete with flashing lights and stellar music, and I'm not necessarily getting down on that right here. But churches are not services or events or facilities. Churches are people. And if a church starts to look and quack like a corporate enterprise, complete with the facades of dutiful service that hide the infighting of a bunch of individuals out to make a name for themselves, building their own ministries like sprawling empires under the guise of kingdom work, using their God-given power to exalt themselves instead of or even at the expense of others, all that glitz and glam operates less like a door to heaven and a lot like a curtain 
to hide hell. Once that curtain is pulled back like it's been time and time again, people will look on and say, well, isn't that a great show? But where's God? Striving for the success in the eyes of the world is indeed, as scripture says, a way to pierce one with many griefs. Also in our country are ministries that might be more tucked away in the corners. Congregants gather for Sunday service. They enjoy a nice potluck or desserts and coffee, as is our custom here. Hear a nice sermon, sing some nice songs, and then they go home entirely unchanged. They leave church to pick up their phone or turn on this and hear the sermons of the world. I'm preaching to myself right now. All the while being divided into this camp or this tribe at the expense of the kingdom that will never pass away. I once heard it said that the rudest customers at restaurants and diners are the Sunday afternoon crowd. Where is God? A statistic that's been said over and over and over but should still call us to reflect on our hearts and to pray is that rates of divorce are not significantly different within versus without the church. Now marriage is complicated and difficult. The divorce is messy and grievous. But is not marriage a symbol of the relationship between Christ and his church which would make divorce blasphemy? Where is God? I gathered some statistics from an organization that researches sexual sin in the church. And after running some calculations, determined that if you held a conference for youth pastors, and once you seated everybody down, asked them to look left, right, forward, and back, that each one of them would more likely than not have just looked at someone who is addicted to pornography all the while teaching young women that they are not mere objects. And that should cause us to grieve. Who should care about what the church thinks about our cultural moment if we wear long tassels on our cloaks and scripture on our foreheads while seeking our own and doing what's right in our eyes? Where is God? Paul implies that these things he's seeing in the church of Rome should not be so, and he does so for a few reasons. First, as I mentioned, Paul writes the people of God should be different because that is how God is seen. Without holiness, no one will see God. To see something clearly is to recognize contrast. I can take my glasses off and you all look like a bunch of blurs. But I can put my glasses on and I can recognize each of you because I know what's you and what's not you. Likewise, when the church operates different from the world in accordance with the word of God, God is more visible. Not necessarily more likable, not necessarily more palatable, but more visible. Second, and more relevantly for the rest of the chapter, Paul writes that the people of God should be different to show how far, how far they fall short, that's a tongue twister, to show how far they fall short of the righteousness of God. And this is a major theme in the book of Romans. 
The Ten Commandments weren't just given to promote a flourishing society, though they do. They are given to expose our nature for what it truly is, and to let us know of our need for a Savior. When Jesus said that a man commits adultery, if he so much as lets his eyes wander, he doesn't just set a higher ethical standard that we might muster enough strength to attain if we try really hard, but to set a standard that no man, if they are honest, can dream of attaining, aside from Christ himself. The point is not to do what the Pharisees did. Now, the Pharisees really did this. They would walk along, and if they felt that they were being drawn to look lustfully at a woman, they would run into things. And then they would go over to their Pharisee buddies and compare their uh, bruises and scars they got from going out of their way so as not to look at a woman with lustful intent. That is not what the Bible calls us to do. The Bible calls us to say, God's ways are too good for me to be like the person that Jesus talked about going to the temple and, say, and beating his breast, a symbol of grief and saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. The ways of God are beyond my ability. I need a savior. That is what the Bible calls us to do. The belief that we can earn the favor of God by doing good things is a heresy. Believing that I can just do these good things to earn God's favor. I'm in God's favor. Look at what I've done. Look at the ministry I've done. Look at the kingdom work that I've done. And saying, God, isn't this great? That is a heresy called moralism. But the message of the Bible is that the standards of God are too high and lofty for Jew or Gentile to attain. And this is because God is good. And unlike the gods of other faiths, he doesn't grade on a curve. God is too good to compromise his goodness. That's why God himself had to be our substitute on the cross. No other substitute would do. And that's why goodness is specified as a fruit of the Spirit, not something that we acquire naturally. We can't be good as God requires, but God can be good in and through us. It is not I who live, Paul was inspired to write, but Christ who lives in me. So Paul is going to drive home this point of the true standard of righteousness in the verses to follow. Let's start reading at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, what is circumcision? I'll say what a pastor that I respect said to his congregation once. Parents, tag. You're it. <laughs> but why make this surgery a symbol of God's people? 
Now, the Bible doesn't go far to explain other than that God said to do it. And I, I've heard some good theories, uh, but the pulpit is not the place for theorizing. Well, we might talk about it in a Q&A afterwards. I'll welcome that. But the pulpit is not the place for theorizing. Some rabbis argue that it's best not to theorize at all and simply to do what God says. And it is the doing, after all, not necessarily the understanding, that shows that we have faith in the one who is faithful. But what the Bible does make clear in several passages in the Old Testament is just like the flesh is removed, so the inward desire to be impure must also be removed from our hearts if we are to be holy as God requires. Now, there was a big debate in the early church about circumcision for the Gentiles. There were the Jewish Christians who said that if the Gentiles were going to do this whole conversion thing right, they would need to be circumcised. They were called the circumcision party, which is, again, a little unsettling, but uh, not the kind of party I'd like to be part of. But others, including Paul, rightly argued that circumcision was not required for Gentiles, but that it was a sign given to the Jews specifically to set them apart from the other nations. Though it made for much vexation in Paul's ministry, Paul does get to use circumcision here as a metaphor for righteousness. Circumcision was a sign that you were part of the covenant community, but that did not make you righteous in and of itself. You identify yourself as someone on God's team, but if you're not a team player, you're not really on God's team. You just might be wearing the uniform. This is what Paul calls uncircumcision. You're not on the team because in order to be on the team, you have to play by the rules and to play them well. But, the, uh, but Paul takes a step further. If a man who is uncircumcised, that is in the flesh, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Here's someone who doesn't wear the uniform, per se, but if they're a capable team player, they may as well be regarded as on the team, since though they lack the outer symbol, they have the inner qualities to which the symbol refers and the symbol signifies. They don't have the jersey, as it were, but they live a regimented life of diet and exercise and can play the position as well as anyone on the team. Moreover, such a person has every right to call out the fake jersey wearers, as Paul says here, I'm pointing to a blank slide, I'll read off of here. He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. If I had a dime for every time in school or here that I pointed to a blank slide, I'd be a wealthy man. All right, gotta keep track of things. What is all this getting at? We've seen over the last few weeks that ethnicity does not exempt you from the righteousness, uh, from being held accountable for the righteousness that God desires dodging God's judgment. And now we see that outward displays of righteousness don't suffice either. God's judgment is coming for everybody. That's what all the beginning of Romans, starting at chapter 1, verse 18, is about. To keep going with the sports analogy, living in Philadelphia doesn't make you a Philadelphia Eagle, and neither does wearing an Eagles jersey. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Paul writes. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. The outer symbol is useless to evade God's judgment unless it is paired with the heart that God desires. 
Now, definitely some of you at this point are thinking, well, no one can be righteous in God's sight. So this athlete who may as well be on the team doesn't exist. If you're thinking that way, you're on the right track. We'll get there in a few minutes. But while we're here, don't gloss over that last part of the verse I just read. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. Well, let's flesh that out. What's the letter? The letter is the written code that God gave to Israel. That's the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in which God lays out his law. But having the letter and knowing the code that God gave does nothing to prevent God's judgment. And as we read last week, it, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The law can't make anyone righteous. Flip that around. It is the righteous who follow the law and do so perfectly, which of course is impossible as we'll see later in Romans, specifically in Romans 3. So the law actually exposes our problem rather than offers us a solution. It's not the law then that makes us righteous in the sight of God, but the spirit. But what on earth does that mean? And here's where I get a little bit technical, try to spare you the most of the details here. The phrase, I'm going to pull it up here. It, uh, the, uh, where is it? Um, by the spirit. Uh, where is it? A Jew is one inwardly in circumcision, a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. The phrase by the spirit here, that's the ESV translation there. When translated, it literally means in spirit. And this is actually a very tricky part of the verse to translate, if you, if you take a, a careful look at it. And the Bible scholars I referenced disagreed on whether spirit should have a capital S or a lowercase s. Now, to be clear, spirit with a capital S is the Holy Spirit, God himself, while spirit with a lowercase s refers to our inner self. That is a big difference. And though it may seem perhaps like a small thing, the spirit uh, is the one who works within us. We know those who are in Christ know that. It is the spirit who works with our spirit. A quote from Charles Spurgeon does come to mind. Wisdom knows the difference between truth and almost truth. So trouble me to get into this uh, discrepancy here. It's not entirely clear, so we do, we can use this as a teaching opportunity, to do what all students of the Word of God should do, which is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So circumcision of the heart, which is right before this, is talked about a couple times in the Old Testament. And where it's mentioned um, it, uh, in, in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah specifically in both cases, the passages talk about removing all that's ungodly from the heart, and the Spirit of God is not directly mentioned in either of those passages. Also, the phrase, in spirit, is the same one that Jesus used when talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, which is actually very helpful in describing this idea. The woman, after having been confronted, if you remember the account, with her past and present sins, really quickly changes the conversation and says, well, you Jews worship on this place, and we worship on this mountain, so where should we really worship? And Jesus gives his cryptic, but after some analysis, very helpful and insightful answer. He says, those who worship God must worship in spirit, 
Same words as we see here when translated, uh, before the translation, same words in the original Greek, in spirit and truth. And again, this refers to a posture of the heart. So for this and for other reasons, I'm going to humbly conclude that what Paul is saying is that righteousness is achieved by the internal reality of an upright heart posture, which incidentally would be spirit with a lowercase s. All right, so subtle thing, but we'll, we'll talk about the significance of that later. Not just the outward displays of right living. And take that in the negative, one might do some good things, but if one's nature, spirit with a lowercase s, is bent in towards self, one will also do things in accordance with the sinful nature and ruin everything. So this is why the praise of the righteous is not from man, but from God. We may look at someone and say, wow, look at them. Look at their acts of service. Look at their ministry. Look at their compassion. And then find later that they were abusive, self-seeking, or otherwise corrupt. But God knows the truth all along. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what's the value of looking righteous only? Well, it gathers an audience. sells books. gets you invited to conferences. But if all the expectations of people are betrayed by an uncircumcised heart that's going to let the status and the money and the likes on social media and all the other filth of the world to slosh around in their minds and bolster their ego, they only fall with a greater crash. Which happens when God is fed up with their hypocrisy and says, enough. People's praise, good as it feels, is temporal. It exists only now. Eternity is a long time. And that should inform us as to where I, our priorities should sit. Where our treasure is, there our heart will also be. And to add insult to injury, don't people always remember the bad things that the hypocrites did in the end? Think back at the people who have been exposed. We barely remember the good stuff they did. They're only remembered, even in this life, for the bad. What's the use? So why do we still have things like celebrity pastors with self-help sermons? The same reason Jesus had to warn his disciples about fake messiahs. Because the praise of other people is tempting as it is accessible to anyone who can speak and look the right way. Because people care about the righteousness, quote-unquote, that you can see and hear what you do, how you look, and how you carry yourself, because that is how people want to look themselves. But the Lord cares about the heart. And true holiness is not about getting what the world desires, but getting the stuff of heaven into us. And the stuff of heaven doesn't look glamorous precisely because it's invisible. But you turn through the pages of your Bible and you read through the heroes of the faith who were themselves not usually very glamorous, but nonetheless did what was right in the sight of God and were vindicated in the end. Indeed, in the age to come, many who were last in this life shall be first, and those who are first in this life shall be last. So how can we actually be righteous in spirit Not on our own. Not on our own. 
That is what takes Christianity apart from all the other religions of the world. You cannot be righteous to God's standard on your own. It is impossible. Romans 3 is going to make that crystal clear. But with God, all things are possible. I'm going to jump ahead very quickly to Romans 3, starting at verse 21. Romans 3, 21. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app with you, turn there. I want you to see this. Even if you've seen it so many times. Romans 3, verse 21. It reads, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned. All. Jew, Gentile, everybody. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That is made right in God's sight. As a pastor who I respect sometimes says, righteousified. By his grace, God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is how righteousness in spirit begins. Back one. There we go. This is how righteousness in spirit begins. Though we fall short in God's sight, God in his grace sent Jesus, the God-man, God of very God, as a redeemer in our place, being righteous on our behalf and suffering on our behalf. Our sin is applied to him, and his righteousness is applied to us. Righteousness begins by believing that Jesus did this for us because we needed forgiveness from God first. And because through God, because though God is just and tolerates no sin, he is love, willing to bear all of it. And if we believe that this is for us, we are forgiven for sin and reconciled to a holy God. Then, and only then, can we become righteous in spirit, by God's power and not our own, because then the Spirit of God himself, capital S, transforms our spirits, lowercase s, day by day, so that we might be shaped in our hearts to have the character of Christ. It is as if we were a wayward child, grasping at the hand of our loving parent, trusting that they know the way and that we need only follow and obey, trusting not in our own understanding, but in the understanding of the one who loves us. From there, it's the spirit, capital S, that encourages our spirit, lowercase s, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not for the praise of men, but to the glory of God. And we can thank God that he is patient and that he is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you 
for passages that look really obscure at face value, but when we dig into them, reveal your wisdom perfectly. I pray that as each of us goes out, that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit not to be the stereotypical Sunday afternoon patrons, but that we, by being salt and light, preserving the world from evil and showing them your truth, that we would be glorifying to you in the way that we think and speak and live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the AFC Podcast. I hope and pray today's word has challenged you to align your thinking with God's word. If you would like to come visit us for one of our services, we would love to have you. We are located at 457 West Allen Street in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We are in what is called the Daybreak Room, which is housed in the Dubs Community Center. 457 West Allen Street, Allentown, PA. Our services start at 1 p.m. So if you're looking for a church that sticks to the word of God, come on out and join us. We'd love to see you. Till next time, God bless.